Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 31. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, I would just like to say, I, I saw her earlier when I was doing call to worship. Um, but if you don't know, Deb Ramirez is here. We're very thankful you're here, Deb. She's with See Jesus. She's uh, training people to teach the Bible in Central America. And it seems like her, uh, God just continues to bless your ministry and give you more and more places and people to serve. And so we're glad that you're here with us today. Um, and Barry is here somewhere as well. I see, okay, Barry and Marquita are both here today. So we are thankful to have all of you with us this morning. It's good to see you, and uh, more, more so you, Marquita, than Barry, but we're glad he's here as well. Um, it is also, uh, I, w- I was here last Sunday, but it, I, I do want to say now, um, it is very good to be with you guys. After uh, one week of mission trip with the youth and parents, and then five and a half weeks of sabbatical slash vac- vacation, uh, we watched you guys via live stream a few Sundays, and that was good. But I think the closest thing that I can relate it to would be like you couldn't make Thanksgiving meal, and so your family like skyped you in or live streamed you in. It's okay, but it's not like being with you face to face, being able to be with you, hear you sing, and partake of uh, God's word together. And so I'm glad to be here with you. Before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together in this room to consider your word. As we do, would you give all of us ears to hear, eyes to see, to receive your truth, Give us hearts that cherish it and wills that want to obey, to be challenged. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was June 17th and the year of our Lord, 2022. There was a church that had two pastors. One was on vacation. The other was on sabbatical. Yet this same church heard a wonderful sermon with perhaps the greatest sermon introduction of all sermon introductions in history. If you were here, you know know what I was talking about or what I'm talking about. Wallace Kelly came and preached to the church that morning. And then just a couple of weeks later, Eric Reimer preached and falling in line with Pastor Stephen and Wallace who gave us some unknown event from 1836 that nobody, not even Wallace, knows about, Eric followed suit and gave us a historical reference. And then a few weeks after that, Ryan Gaiman came and preached. And apparently Ryan didn't want to be outdone because he gave two historical references in his introduction, one John Knox and the other Anselm. So you might be wondering, well, what sort of tidbit historical information is Josh going to give me this morning? And it'll be none. Okay? (laughs) It will be none today. But I do want to start with a question. What will it take for you to shut up about Jesus? What would it take for you to stop talking about Christ? Not just on Sunday in Sunday school, but at the dinner table with your family at the workplace over lunch, sitting in the front yard with your neighbor, what would it take for you to stop talking about Jesus? Because I think in many ways, that's what the world would like of us. So many of us probably want our country to be different, our culture to be different. Yet we don't have guns to our heads. We're not banned by the government from meeting on Sundays. It's not illegal to own or read a Bible. 
But that doesn't mean we don't experience discrimination or oppression maybe or some forms of persecution. Our culture really just wants us to keep our faith, keep Jesus private. They wouldn't say it necessarily, but what they, I think they want is for us to keep Jesus in the pew and Jesus in our homes, but not actually talk about him in public. In our culture, that might be one of the great sins, is to speak of Jesus in public. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 4 with a similar situation, and we will consider four scenes in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. We'll see troubling speech. We'll see bold speech. We'll see compelled speech. And we'll also see a prayer for boldness. So before we jump into Acts 4, I do want to just catch you up. Maybe it's your first Sunday or uh, you weren't here any of the other times I've preached Acts or you just forgot because it's been a while. So Acts chapter 1, right? Jesus has ascended from, uh, risen from the grave. Before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he promises to send the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, that's what happens. The Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost on God's people, on the disciples. And then immediately after, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 are saved. And then the last part of Acts 2, we see the church is formed. They devote themselves to what we might call as ordinary things. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to praying. And what happens? God continues to add to their number day by day day. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they heal a lame man. And Peter preaches immediately after, which leads us to Acts chapter 4. And we see that scene, or or we see Acts chapter 3 continued on. So let's look now at verses 1 through 4, where we'll see troubling speech. Verse 1. And as they, referring to Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John here, they're preaching. We only see recorded speech from Peter in chapters 3 and 4, but it does tell us that they're both speaking. And it's here that we first start to see the the, the glimpses of controversy or persecution that the early church is going to experience. It's not the first sign of suffering or persecution God's people have ever gone through. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it also in the Gospels, even Jesus himself persecuted. But it's the first sign of suffering of the early church. And so Peter and John, they're interrupted while they're preaching. And so you might think Pastor Stephen preaches along. But nothing near Peter and John, right? It says Acts chapter 3 verse 1 that Peter and John are going to the temple at the ninth hour. That is 3 p.m. When they heal this man and they start preaching and then they're talking to people. And so they're preaching. The crowd is gathering. And these religious leaders, they don't like it. And this has been going on so long that apparently it's too late to put them in jail. So these priests, or the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they're greatly annoyed. So at this time of day, there probably wasn't the, or there wasn't the entire council. These priests, captain of the temple and Sadducees, are just a few of the 71 leaders known as the Sanhedrin. We see in verse uh, 6, we'll get there a little bit later, but I just want to give you a preview now. Verse 6, that this Sanhedrin or this council is made up of rulers, that is priests, including even this captain of the temple who had been the second in command, after the high priest. It's made up of elders, that is, uh, lay leaders of the Jewish community, 
usually it's the Sadducees. And then also we see in uh, verse 6 that the scribes are mentioned. That would be people of the, you might say, the, the lawyer class of the Jews, the Pharisees. And so a portion of them are there while Peter and John are speaking and preaching. And it's too late to throw, or it's too late to take them before the full council, so they put them in prison. So what is it that could be so troubling, right, that you have to put somebody in prison for coming to the temple and speaking or preaching? Well, verse 2 tells us they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they're greatly annoyed by two things. First, that they're teaching teaching this resurrection, but it's not just that they're teaching about the resurrection, but that it's in Jesus. So we know even from Matthew chapter 22 and Acts, later in the book of Acts uh, chapter 23, that the Sadducees were people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any life after this life. But they're also frustrated, annoyed, troubled that they're preaching resurrection in Jesus. Right? The very man that weeks before, months before, they had crucified their enemy. Peter and John are preaching about resurrection, something they don't believe in, and preaching that it comes only through Jesus, the one that they thought was their enemy. So I even want to just pause here for a second and just remind you, church, that when you talk about Christ, you shouldn't be caught off guard that it's going to annoy or trouble people. You've probably seen this before. I've had this happen to me before when I lived in Boston. Probably the, 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 at least the instance that sticks out the most in my mind. I was at a bus stop talking to a man while he's waiting for the bus and just talking about just regular everyday stuff. And then I start to transition to talking to him about God. And as soon as God's brought up, he immediately shut down. Don't talk to me about that. How dare you talk to me about God? I was actually a little caught off guard. And I shouldn't have been. Right? So I want to remind each and every one of us that we should not be caught off guard when people are troubled and annoyed, even greatly annoyed, when we talk about Jesus. And then in verse 3, what happens when they're annoyed? They arrest them. They put them in custody until the next day because it was too late. It was already evening, and so they couldn't have this council to decide what to do with Peter and John. And so even though some people are greatly annoyed, even though Peter and John experience persecution here, verse 4 gives us good news, right? But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So this isn't saying that 5,000 were saved in one day. It's not saying that even, you know, if, if you look back to Acts chapter 2, right, 3,000 came to faith in, uh, at Peter's preaching. Um, and now in, in chapter 4, it's saying 5,000. Well, we also know at the end of chapter 2, God was adding to their number day by day. So likely there were a lot of people that came to faith through Peter's preaching in, in Acts chapter 3. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it was exactly 2,000, but it just says, says 5,000 men. So who knows what God had been doing as the church was believing in Christ and living ordinary lives like we looked at in chapter 2. And as the word goes out and Christ is preached, there may have easily been 10,000 people. If you count men, women, and children... So God is doing great things, mighty things, as his people are sharing the word. So Peter and John, they're teaching, they're proclaiming this good news of the resurrection of Christ, which troubled some. And when they spoke, they spoke with great boldness. Great boldness. Let's look at the next scene, verses 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, the midst, they in their midst, 
they required, inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the next day, right, the court's in session, the council has gathered, the, the, the defendants are surrounded. They're in the midst of this council. And the inquiry seems to shift, right? Verse 2, it says that they were greatly annoyed that they were preaching the resurrection in Jesus. Now, verse 7, the question is, who have you been healing? Whose name have you been healing in? By what power have you done this? And the defendants respond. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. So I think this filling is different than when the Holy Spirit indwells believers when they profess faith in him. And the reason why I say that is if you look at the book of Acts, every time it talks about someone being filled with the Holy Spirit, it then goes on to say that they were then preaching or speaking with boldness about Jesus. So this filling with the Spirit that happens with Peter it seems as though it's this, uh, this, this filling that allows for boldness to speak about Christ. And Peter doesn't shy away, right? He speaks of Jesus. He tells that this good deed that we've done, it was done in Jesus' name. It's done by the authority of Christ. And if I were on trial, I'd probably stop about that point, Right? You've probably seen this in classrooms when the teacher asks a question, or most recently I've seen it uh, with one of my son's soccer teams at, at practice. We started that practice um, with looking at video from the practice before, and we're talking about the drill that happened, and, and so then the coach singles out one of the players and says, well, why did you do what you did here? Tell me what you were thinking. So he's trying to ask open-ended questions to get a response, right? And what happens usually when a professor or maybe a coach asks a question and maybe you know, hey, I didn't do the right thing. You give as little information as possible, right? So that you can kind of like answer the question but keep moving on quickly. That's the exact opposite of what Peter does here. He says, well... I did this, I performed this miracle in the name of Jesus. But then he goes on and says much, much, much more. Look at verse 10 with me. This Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So not, not only does Peter answer their question, he goes on and shares the gospel with them, right? And it's not just this, this gospel that says, yeah, there's this guy that can do some good things for your life. He says, no. You crucified him. You put him on the cross. You killed him. And you, the people, the very religious leaders that should have been building up the faith, were actually cutting down the faith. Because you rejected the one whom all faith should rest, the cornerstone, that is Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, but that's not the end. What you tried to stop, 
what you tried to destroy could not be stopped because God raised Jesus from the dead. He made him alive. And then it's, it's like this exp- implicit invitation, right? He doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say that you killed him. Jesus is alive. Peter goes on to say, well, there's no salvation found in all the world in any other person or any other act than Jesus. Through his death, through his resurrection. And so I just wonder, even at this time, like of all the time that Peter and John spent with Jesus, I wonder what words might have been coming to his mind, even as he's speaking. I wonder what memories or lessons are coming to their minds as they're in front of this council, giving an answer for what's happened. What thoughts of Jesus came to mind? The first thing that comes to mind for me is is Jesus' words from Mark 13, verses 9 through 11, where Jesus tells his disciples, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over... Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that line up exactly with what's happening here, right? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks. So imagine the peace that he probably had in prison the night before. If he's thinking about the words of Christ, I wonder if that came to mind. God will fill me with the Spirit that he might speak through me as I stand before this council. So I know none of us, at least not right now, are standing before councils. But I wonder are you so bold? Are you so confident in the promise of Jesus that he will, through the Holy Spirit, speak through you when you give account of him? Do you trust this promise that the Holy Spirit will indwell you, will fill you, and give you words to say that you would speak boldly of him as you offer salvation to the lost? Because there's no salvation in any other name than Jesus. And so speaking boldly of Jesus, it's what's required for others to be saved. But that doesn't mean that you will speak boldly of Jesus. Let's look at verses 13 through 22 as we see compelled speech. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who, had, who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a, no, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people... Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the council seems to take note of Peter and John. Right? It even says that they were uneducated. They were common I wonder if this is really described, I mean, it describes them, this is true, but I wonder if it even describes the way that they spoke, their language. 
Maybe it describes the way that they look. Blue-collar fishermen. And yet, they speak with such boldness. Such boldness that the council is blown away because these are the educated, right? Peter and John are not. So I even think this is a wonderful reminder to us. Education is not a requirement for godliness. Education is not a requirement for confidence in sharing the gospel. I think probably a, a wonderful illustration of this is, is two great figures from the past. John Owen, highly educated, chaplain of Oliver Cromwell, vice chancellor of Oxford University, dean of Christ Church, and a prolific author. In contrast to John Bunyan, who had very little education, was a poor man. He was a tinkerer by trade, meaning he repaired household utensils and items to sell them. He was the son of a poor tinkerer, too. He was also imprisoned for more than a decade. Both shared a love for the Lord and preaching his word. And so when King Charles II heard John Owen appreciate uh, John Bunyan's preaching, Charles II asked, how he who had such learning, had much learning, could hear such a tinkerer preach. So he's saying, John Owen, you're a smart man. You're like, you're crazy smart. Why do you want to go hear this uneducated preacher? To which Owen responded, May it please your majesty, had I the tinkerer's ability for preaching, I would most gladly relinquish all my learning. Education is not the foundation that we rest our confidence in when we share the gospel. It rests in Jesus Christ. So Owen's heart was captured by the preaching of Bunyan. Perhaps for the same reason that Peter and John stood out so much too. Look back at scripture with me. Verse 13, right? The last sentence there. And they recognized, that is the council, recognized that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. So I wonder if Peter and John perhaps maybe carried themselves like Jesus. Maybe they spoke like Jesus because they'd been with him for three and a half years. Maybe they used similar words and phrases as their Savior, the one whom they looked to. So what about, what do you think people think when they hear you speak? Does your speech say more that you're an evangelist for the latest book you've read? Or the newest restaurant you've visited? Or the new artist or song that you like from the radio? If you even listen to radio, maybe Spotify now. Are you constantly touting your favorite sports team? Virginia Tech fans. Maybe not this weekend. Or are you perhaps seen more as one who's been with Jesus? One who resembles Jesus? Have you sat at the feet of Jesus, reading your Bible, praying to him, seeking him, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and that as you delight in him, it just comes out because that's what you love the most. That's what you're cherishing the most. So this council takes note also, not just of Peter and John, but of this man who's been healed. He's standing there with them. Whether he was put in prison too, we don't know. Or if he just uh, was so grateful for what they had done for him that he showed back up the next day. Either way, he's there. And so the council sees not just Peter and John, but also this man who's been healed. And so they're stumped by it. There's something like, what do we do now? Look at verse 15. So the only thing that they can think of at the time is they commanded them to leave the council. They dismissed everybody. They conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is, all evident, to, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we can't deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So the council doesn't know what to do. It's clear to everyone, right? The, the council who's been coming to the temple day by day for probably at least some of them 40 years. The people of Jerusalem who've been going to offer prayers day by day to the temple. They've all probably passed by this man numerous times, not just a week, but a day as he used to sit outside the temple gates. And then all of a sudden, one day, they walk into the temple and they maybe realize, I didn't see him outside, but now I see him standing. Everybody knows what's happened to this man. Because he had been lame for 40 years. So, they demand Peter and John to stop speaking about Jesus. They charge them to not speak or teach at all in his name. Then look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, we cannot but speak, of what we have seen and heard. So they're essentially putting, or they are putting before the council. They're saying, you're putting us in a situation where you're making us choose between you and God. Following God and following you. And they're saying, well, we've already made our decision. You need to now make your choice. Which one do you really want us to do, you religious leaders? Do you want us to obey your words or do you want us to follow God? And I just, just wonder, like, what is it that would make someone respond like? They could have just simply said, we did, we healed this guy in Jesus' name and probably would have just been off. Been walking out of the temple where they're free. But when they're told not to proclaim Christ, they could have just kept silent. They could have probably just walked away, but instead they have seen and heard the goodness of Christ. Right? They've tasted and seen his goodness. They're fully convinced Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And not only that, but that they must then obey his command, right? Go and make disciples. So being fully convinced of who Christ is and his commands, they obey. They share this good news. And there's so much, I, I, so many times I just think there's ways that if I were in their shoes, I probably would have justified being quiet. Maybe it would have been okay to be quiet there. I don't know for sure. Because they could be thinking, well, I could just be quiet, be released, and go on preaching. And not even tell them I'm going to do that. But that's what they did. They said, we're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep talking about Christ. And that the only thing that can make me think, they're doing this. They're wanting to make sure their, their intentions are clear is because they are fully trusting. They are so compelled about who Christ is and his commands that they can't help but continuing to talk about him. So you and I, I think we... We have to learn from this. Right? We must know Christ, and not just intellectually, but we must love him, cherish him, what he's done for us, knowing that we deserve death, right? Because we've sinned, we've rebelled against God, we've pushed him away, the creator, the sustainer of all things. But God, who was rich in mercy, sent Christ to die for us the ungodly, his enemy. And he raised him from the dead, securing victory over death and sin and promising eternal life to all who have faith through the resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, have you tasted and seen the goodness of Christ? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins? 
the freedom that it brings. Remember back to the day that you have placed faith or that you placed faith in Christ. That weight that was removed, the joy that you experienced, may that help motivate, compel you to speak of Jesus. Which leads us to the fourth and final observation. A prayer for boldness. A prayer for boldness. Look at me, or look with me at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and elders had said to them what they had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and all the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I wish we had enough time just to spend a whole sermon on this prayer. But if I did that, we'd spend, you know, I'm already probably going to, it's going to end up being like five years through the book of Acts. But if I stopped every time I wanted to just press pause on something, we'd probably spend 10 years in the book of Acts. But this prayer is so full of truth. I even want to just encourage you this afternoon, maybe spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just reading back through this prayer, noticing what they do and what they say in this prayer. But maybe I can help us think briefly on it. But before looking directly at the prayer, notice what Peter and John did. They were released. And what did they do? They went to their friends, that is the church, the believers in Jerusalem, and they reported what happened. They told the facts. They didn't embellish. They didn't slander their persecutors. They simply went back and talked to their fellow believers and told them what happened. And then what's the natural response of the church? They prayed. That is so not 21st century. Right? What we're going to be doing What most of us might be inclined to do anyways is to slander, to gossip, take it to social media, blast it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever you like to do with social media, to complain to the world about the injustice that you've experienced. But the early church doesn't do that. Instead, they turn to God through prayer. They turn to God in prayer. Let's look at what they say. And when they heard it, verse 24, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm 2. Not all of it. But just... Picture that for a second, right? The church, verse 24, lifted their voices together. So imagine Pastor Stephen goes out preaching in the streets and he gets put in jail and comes back to us, reports to the church what's happened. And then the church, all of us together, we actually lifted our voices and quoted Psalm 2. And let that begin our prayer. That would be powerful. 
They appeal to God, the sovereign God, not just a referee over the earth. He's not simply just hoping to keep everybody in check. He's sovereign. He rules over all, which is why they're going to him. And they go to him with his own words. Right? They were spoken by David, but they were said by the Holy Spirit. It says that in verse 25. So they're taking God's word back to him. So uh, I was not anticipating this, but um, the book that Kurt plugged for you earlier, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney, excellent book. Very simple book. Even if you don't like to read, go get one. It will help you in praying. Okay? It will show you how easy it is just to simply pray the Bible. Take God's word back to him. Ask him to be faithful to his word, true to his word. And guess what? He will. He always fulfills his promises. And so they're, they're quoting Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 as they pray. Right? The Gentiles rage. The, that is the Romans in their day. The people's plot in vain. You can even see this laid out for us in verse 27, right? They're gathered together against the holy servant. Herod, the king. Verse 26, king of the earth's rulers. Verse 27, Pilate. They're gathered together against the Lord. So they're, they're, they're connecting a lot of dots here, right? And I think it's even helpful to ask the question, why would they choose Psalm 2 to pray at this time? Peter and John just experienced persecution, and now they're quoting Psalm 2. Why? It, to me, it would make more sense, at least better for myself, if I'd pray a, a different psalm, like a psalm of destruction over my enemies that David prayed, or a psalm of deliverance from my enemies like David prayed. But they chose Psalm 2. I think it's because it connects them to God. In Psalm 2, the rulers of the world are gathered together, taking up arms against the Almighty God. And then they apply that even to Jesus, right? Because it says uh, that they, they, were taking a, they were against the Lord's anointed. They were against your holy servant Jesus. So not only is there this reference to God uh, being people coming up against him with arms, but then the Sanhedrin raised up arms, raged against Jesus when he was alive, killed Jesus. Now the council's doing the same thing to the disciples. And so the church is essentially saying the, na the nations raged against God the Father. The nations have raged against Jesus, his perfect holy son. The nations will now rage against the people who belong to God. So they're crying out. We're identifying with you, God, as, as we suffer. We trust in your sovereign, perfect plan. And we entrust ourselves to whatever you have for us. Whatever your hands allow to come our way, we'll receive it. So I want to ask you, have you ever prayed like Have you ever prayed like that? Even perhaps saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We often pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe when we're thinking about we want to experience the comfort of being with God. Or even we want God to come and reign and rule through Christ soon. But have you ever prayed that, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Just thinking, God, I'll receive whatever you send my way. Even if it's persecution and suffering that produces Christ-likeness in me. And then in verse 29. Again, I'm blown away by their prayer. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
So they're calling God to see their circumstances, right? Look upon their threats. God, we want you to hear us. Don't neglect us. But then they move on and say, God, give us boldness. Give us boldness. They're not asking for deliverance. I don't think it'd be wrong for them to ask for that, but that's not what they're asking for here. They're asking for boldness, that they wouldn't shrink back, that they wouldn't cower in fear, that they wouldn't make excuses for not sharing the gospel. There are so many different ways that we can share the gospel. Right? For them, they're asking to not shrink back from sharing the gospel in the midst of persecution. We could ask for boldness to share the gospel because maybe there's someone in our life that we just need to be straight to the point with them. Like Jesus was with the Pharisees at times. Or maybe we need to be bold yet tenderly and lovingly share the gospel with a brokenness in our heart like Jesus did with the woman at the well. It may be in private conversations. It may be in more public forums. But may we ask God to give us boldness. And then I love what they do in verse 30. So they've asked for boldness for them to speak, but then they ask God to move and work, right? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed through, their, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're saying, God, give us boldness. We want to speak in the name of Jesus. But nothing happens unless you work, unless you move in a mighty, mighty way. So I want us to realize again just what's going on. This, they're in the midst of persecution, right? They've been in jail. They've been essentially in a courtroom in front of a religious council. And yet Peter and John and, the, and now the, the church is asking for boldness to speak of Christ because they're more concerned with the glory of God than their own comfort. I wonder how many of us struggle with that. Wanting to be liked. Not be seen as the weird person at work or in the neighborhood. May God give us a boldness. Because we've seen and tasted the goodness of our Savior. May we even draw encouragement from the first century church, right? Because it wasn't popular then to believe in Jesus in Rome at this time. And it's not popular today, 21st century America, to believe in Jesus, to share him. And so I want to ask you, will you pray for boldness? Will you pray for a boldness to share Christ? Because you're more concerned with his glory than your own comfort. And then verse 31 brings a lot of comfort to me, and I hope will for you as well. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak, in the, word, speak the word of God with boldness. So God answers their prayers, right? It's, it's, it says that the, the place was shaken. I kind of wonder if the place shakes with this Deep, affirming yes from the voice of God that shakes the place that they met, saying, yes. May it be so. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They continued to speak about Jesus. The fulfillment of their prayer here in Acts chapter 4, it reverberates over and over and over throughout the book of Acts, as the, the disciples spread the word about Jesus, people come to faith. So I wonder, do you still believe that can happen? Or do you read passages like Acts chapter 4 and that's, that's awesome, that's mighty, that's, that's crazy that God did something like that in the first century. Or do you also believe it can still happen today if you'd pray for boldness, 
asking God to be with you, to fill you with his Holy Spirit as you speak about Christ. So what if we were a church that believed the gospel with all our heart and soul and strength, with every fiber of our being down to our very core? And if we did, can you imagine how different our lives would be, not just on a Sunday morning, but Monday morning, Monday night when you're tired, Friday night when you're exhausted? How different would your speech be? How different might Hamilton and Percival and the nations be if we prayed, asking God to give us a boldness to speak of our wonderful Savior, Jesus? Let's go now to our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we have your word. We come to you now, our sovereign Lord, the same Lord, the same God that the believers that we just read about in Acts chapter 4 prayed to. And I want to ask you that you would give us a boldness. Give me a boldness to share Christ, not just in Sunday school or not just behind a pulpit, but give me a boldness to speak about Jesus tomorrow. Give me a boldness. Give this church a boldness to speak about Jesus when we're at work or when we're in the grocery store or at the soccer field or the football field or wherever it is that we're going to be this week. Give us a boldness to speak about Jesus because we are compelled by what he has done for us, the forgiveness, your rich mercy that you have extended to us. Help us to delight in him and not forget tomorrow what Jesus has done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.